Well, good morning. Good to be with you guys. It is a blessing to have combined services because I get to see all you folks who I don't usually get to see on the other service. And uh, yeah, again, I'm Andy Wong. Good to meet you guys. I'm a member of the campus leadership team. Thank you, Pastor Elijah, for allowing me to speak today. If this is your first time at Overflow, welcome. If this is uh, your first time online, welcome also, including you, James Calland. We're continuing with our sermon series on prayer. Okay, and our scripture today is from James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's word. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you've committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was as human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. This is the word of the Lord. Would you have a seat? Thank you, Lord, for your word. It is life to us. And Lord, we ask that you would bless um, as we study uh, your word and chew on it. In your name. A family of bald eagles lives just a few blocks from here. It's not far from the St. Joe River. Joel Johnson showed me their nest, and we take pictures of them on occasion. This is a picture of them, of one of them up on a, a limb. Um, so let's imagine we're walking by there, and we notice some movement in the brush. We get a little closer and find a young eagle hiding in the grass. We look around and there's no sign of the parents. Maybe it fell out of the nest. It isn't flying away, so we suspect there's something wrong. We carefully pick it up and bring it to a vet. The eagle's a female. It has no broken bones, no major issues, other than it's malnourished and it's very weak. So we take her to a rescue center, and they graciously offer us the opportunity to be a volunteer there so we can help with her care. We make a makeshift nest. We hand feed her strips of chicken and salmon we name her Taylor because she quickly becomes the rock star of the rescue center. And after four months, she's flapping around the enclosure, testing her wings, and it's time to release her. So we take her to a bright, sunny meadow and set her cage on the ground. We live stream the event because it's going to be epic. We open the door. Taylor the eagle pops out of the cage. She gazes up, her fierce eyes searching the bright blue sky with a focus and intensity of an apex predator. She spreads her majestic wings, she beats the air, and then hurries back into her cage. <laughs> so we, pe we peek in and she's nestled in her blankets. We dump her back out and you know, she, uh, she goes back in. We even pick her up and, and toss her into the air, but she flutters down and scratches the dirt, huddling beside us. Now I bring up this illustration because sometimes 
it feels like our prayers behave like Taylor the eagle. We want our prayers to fly to soar into the heavens on powerful, determined wings. But what happens when it seems like our prayers live on the ground, no closer to the heavens than ourselves? Now, there's a time for young eagles to fly. It's usually in the summer. About a month later, they leave the nest. So let's consider the first two verses of Ecclesiastes 3, which says, For everything, there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to harvest. So given that pattern of time, of growth and death, of celebration and mourning, when is the season of prayer? James 5.13 says, Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. So the first thing we see is that we're called to pray in all circumstances. The season of prayer is every season. We give praise to God when things are going well because it's an acknowledgement that all good things come from God's hand. When life is hard, our prayers draw on God's promises for provision. We take Christ at his word when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Now, similarly, Paul writes that we should not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4, 6 to 7. Now, these are bold promises. James 5.15 gives another strong promise, saying, Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Now, the strong, definitive language of this verse can lead us to two extremes. I had a patient one day who had a disease which caused her to leak through the front part of her eye. It's called a cornea. Is considered an emergent situation which usually requires surgery. I explained the seriousness of her condition. We went over the, the treatment options and asked how she'd like to proceed. And she said, I appreciate your evaluation, Dr. Wong, but I really don't want to do surgery. I'd like to pray for healing. And while I respected her decision, I've got to be honest, I was thinking this is a bad idea. This isn't likely to close on its own and she'll be more inflamed or have an infection when we do have to operate. Now, I believe God heals people. I pray with patients regularly for healing. But in this particular case, I didn't think prayer alone was the right call. On her follow-up visit, a few days later, lo and behold, her cornea was sealed. It was the thinnest of membranes maintaining a barrier across her cornea, but it was sealed. So I, I bring up this example to humble myself, but also to show that one extreme is to skip over the healing power of prayer. Now, on the flip side of things, picture a faith healer on TV pointing at the camera, claiming to see someone at home watching the broadcast. The faith healer says he sees a bald, overweight man with a heart problem wearing a yellow shirt. And the faith healer goes on saying he can see the man walking away from the TV, resisting appeals to donate during a Trinity Broadcast Network praise-a-thon. Come back, the faith healer says. If you'll come back and make that pledge, God will heal your heart tonight. Meanwhile, in Portland, Oregon, 
There's a small private graveyard with at least 75 tombstones of children whose parents belonged to a church called the Followers of Christ that relied, that relied on faith healing instead of medical treatment. One congregant buried two young sons in the cemetery before he permanently left the church. Now, this is the opposite extreme regarding prayer and healing. The expectation everyone will be healed by prayer, limited only by the level of our faith. So, how should we understand these verses about healing and prayer? Well, first, all physical healing is temporary, and eternal life redeems the suffering of this present life. There's a song, My Jesus. It's by Ann Wilson, and the chorus goes, He makes a way where there ain't no way, rises up from an empty grave. Ain't no sinner that he can't save. Let me tell you about my Jesus. His love is strong and his grace is free, and the good news is I know that he can do for you what he did for me. Let me tell you about my Jesus, and let my Jesus change your life. Now, the music video of the song starts off with a family standing in the hallway of a hospital, and they look worried. And the doctor comes out of the room, shakes his head, and says, I'm sorry, we did everything we could. And that's when the music kicks in. And we hear this confidence chorus of faith describing how Jesus changes lives and does the impossible. And, you know, meanwhile, we see a coffin being lowered into the ground and a family crying at the kitchen table. Now, there's this apparent disconnect, because the song is about victory. But all we see are the visual images of death, and the last shot is Ann Wilson playing her guitar in an empty, grave, in an empty bedroom. We found out the video's a tribute to her brother, who died at the age of 23. And the implied question of the video is, is there, if there isn't, a miraculous healing, does that take away the strength of the song? Why can we praise God when our prayers for healing fall short of our hopes and expectations? In John 16, Jesus says, Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Paul says in Romans 8, 17, But if we were to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Now, this lifetime is a single dot on a line stretching to eternity. The life we experience now with all its brokenness, sickness, and heartache doesn't compare with our heavenly future, which isn't that far away. C.S. Lewis says there are far, far better things ahead than any we leave behind. Similarly put, um, our hope starts in this life, but comes to fruition in the life to come. As believers, have we considered what that'll be like? Think about a society where love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We're not merely ideals, but practiced by every member of that society. Imagine the hospitality, the respect, the customer service you'd have everywhere. Consider what neighborhoods would be like. In the, kingdom, in the coming kingdom of God, representing every tribe, tongue, and language. If the Tower of Babel, the Babylonian gardens, and the Great Wall of China were conceived by our fallen sinful minds, what kind of architecture and artistry will we find 
in the city of Zion. All of us will succumb to a lethal condition at some point, as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, Hebrews 9. This is not to say our bodies don't matter. We don't follow dualistic Gnostic theology, which says the material body is evil and the spirit is good. God cares about our bodies. We're to pray for the healing of our bodies. We're to meet the physical needs of the neighbor and stranger. But what we're working toward is a body that won't perish, a glorified body created in the power of Christ. Psalm 103.5 says, my youth is renewed like the eagles. Now, the second point is sickness can be a mechanism to help us grow spiritually. We can learn lessons through sickness we'd miss otherwise. Consider Peter Parker, Gwen Stacy, and Miles Morales. What kind of people would they be if they weren't bitten by a radioactive spider? Who'd be around to protect us from the Green Goblin and Dr. Octopus and Kingpin? If some of you are missing this reference, please talk to my son Nathan, and he'll <laughs> fill you in. Now, in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10, Paul writes, Even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, many believe this thorn in the flesh was a physical ailment. Um, some even think it was an eye condition, perhaps vision loss from cataracts. Whatever it was, it wasn't great from a human perspective. But we hear God's answer to Paul's prayer and find that the illness, while not being of God, is being used by God to accomplish his purposes. Sometimes dealing with sickness is a matter of submission to God's will. We see this clearly in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Luke 22, Luke, Jesus, uh, Jesus prays, Father, if you're willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Crucifixion is an extreme version of sickness. Christ didn't need to grow in faith, but he submitted to his Father's will as an example for all of us. One might ask, why sickness? Why pain to grow our faith? Can't we grow in the good times as well? Why, why does it have to be the hard way? Well, C.S. Lewis in The Problem Pain puts it like this. We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's, it's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt pain is God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepented rebellion, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil, it plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. We don't welcome pain, but as we face the trial or sickness, let it draw us closer to the heart of God, forging within us an unshakable hope, resilient against the storm, so that those around us witness Christ's work within us. Sometimes we're called to stand in the fire. Let's remember that he stands with us. Now, the third point is Christ's righteousness is the power behind our prayers. Now, a fledgling eaglet, that's a young eagle, 
starts its flight training by simply standing in the nest and spreading its wings. Drafts of wind come underneath the wings and lift it up, and it levitates for a few seconds. Now, once an eagle is an established flyer, it learns to catch gusts of wind called wind thermals, which allow the eagle to soar into a high atmosphere. There's not much effort by the eagle with this process. It's not flapping around much. It just keeps its wings open. So our prayers are like eagles. The wings represent our faith, which extended catch the wind. The wind represents the powerful movement of the Holy Spirit, which is the driving force, lifting our prayers heavenward. James 5 says, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was as human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rains would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky let down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. So what gives power to our prayers? Well, verse 16 is the key. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. When, where does that righteousness come from? Is it based on what we've done? Well, based on verse 17, that's not the case. James brings up Elijah, the great prophet of ancient Israel. Elijah raised the dead. He ran faster than a horse. He called down fire from heaven. But James describes Elijah as being as human as we are. In other words, Elijah was a person with a sinful nature just like us. But it is the power of God, ultimately Christ's righteousness in us, which gives power to our prayers. The true Christian prayer believes that who you pray to is infinitely more important than the conviction or intensity you pray with. How much faith does it take to move a mountain? A tiny seed of faith. My in-laws like to have reunions in rustic areas. So we were up in northern Wisconsin, which is like northern Michigan. There's a lot of inland lakes, pontoon boats, cabins without air conditioning. <laughs> At the beginning of the week, I was out on a paddleboard, and I noticed a bald eagle was zipping through the air back and forth over the water hunting fish. And so I paddled back to, to, back to shore, and I grabbed my camera and, t- and tracked this eagle speeding across the sky. Um, it was too high and too fast for me, for, for me to get any good shots, so I started praying. And I prayed that God would make the eagle land close by so I can get some pictures of it. And I prayed, and I prayed, but the eagle didn't land. And I felt that God was telling me something in that moment. And the message was, the eagle will go where it will go. And it's not your place to choose its destination. And I think that's how it is when we pray for healing. We're, we're called to pray. That's our job. We send the eagle on its way. But God chooses its destination. Amen. Verse 14 says, Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. First, look at the setting described in the passage. It's a person's home. It's not a spectacle. It's not a public event. It involves a sick person prayed by normal people from church. The scripture mentions oil. Now, I am an elder in the church, so if you ask me to come over and pray, I have canola, I have extra virgin oil, olive, and I have butter-flavored cooking spray. The spray is convenient, which offers a wide diameter of no-stick divine intervention. So what's the significance of oil? 
In Mark 6, it says that the disciples cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. Now, this is the only time Mark mentions the use of oil for healing. In all four, gospel, all four Gospels, Jesus never uses any oil. In the entire New Testament, healing oil is only mentioned in James 5.14, Mark 6, and in Luke 10.34, which is the parable of the Good Samaritan, where oil is medicinal. So think of oil as a tactile, recognizable symbol that God's blessing is at work, much like baptism and communion are physical acts associated with unseen spiritual mechanisms, God can use the symbolism of oil for his will and purposes. Verse 15 says, Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So let's talk about health and sin. First off, having a disease doesn't mean you've sinned. This is, we talk about Job, right? This is one of the points raised. Jesus addresses this directly in John 9, 1 through 3, and it says, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been born blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. Now, James 5 indicates some illnesses can be related to sin, and there are other scriptures like that. Regarding communion, 1 Corinthians 11, it says, So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That's why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you're eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That's why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. So how should we understand these scriptures regarding sickness? There's a third passage to consider. It's Luke 13, 1 through 5. About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Jesus asked. Is that why they suffered? Not at all, and you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No, and I tell you again, that unless you repent, you'll perish too. So Jesus mentions two disasters that were probably well known in his day. One was a massacre ordered by Pontius Pilate. The other was probably a natural disaster when the tower fell on 18 people. Jesus' point was not that the Galileans were innocent. His point was that they were simply not more guilty than the others. All were and are guilty of sin. So Jesus takes the question of why did this happen and focuses on a different question. What does this mean for me? Jesus says, don't condemn Sodom and Gomorrah when we ourselves face the brimstone of judgment if we are not right with God. Let tragedy cause us to reassess our priorities. The early church practiced their faith with a sense of urgency, as if the axe were already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire, Matthew 3. We're called to have the same focus and readiness today. Let's ask the tough questions. What are we living for? What matters for eternity? If I were to die this very night, 
Would Jesus welcome me and say, well done, good and faithful servant, or away from me, I don't know you. I grew up in a Christian home. I have godly parents, we're here today, who modeled faith well. I accepted Christ at an early age, but functionally, I lived in the world. I struggled with pride, lust, and jealousy. As a result, I was very alone. I didn't open up much. I didn't have any real friends. I didn't have a voice. I would have died before speaking on stage. It was around sophomore year that God called me to repent. And the, mass, the message came from a number of places, from family, from scripture, from the encouragement of a youth pastor, from my conscience. And the message was, do away with all these things holding you back and take on the identity Christ gives you. And one of the verses I memorized that year was Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, which says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, that you may not grow weary or lose heart. And since then, God's given me a voice. I'm a different person than I used to be. In Christ, I have become a new creation with a new heart and a new mind. It's a process. Like all believers, we are in a constant state of refinement. For my young people in the congregation, trying to find your place in the world, leave sin behind you and follow Christ. Amen. This is the road to transformation. In Luke 13, Jesus brings up the need for repentance twice. The Greek word in Luke 13.5 describes a once and for all repentance. The verb tense in Luke 13.3 describes a continuing repentance. We receive forgiveness for our sins once and for all when we receive Christ. Then what follows is the ongoing growth of the believer, which is a lifelong endeavor, and that's the dynamic we see in James 5.16 when it says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So... What is confession? In the Catholic tradition, there are ritualistic procedures by which you confess your sins to a priest. In our church, confession isn't done with particular rules, but often in the context of friendships, small groups, and discipleship relationships. Why do we confess our sins? So light reveals truth. So the human eye has a natural lens, which over time gets cloudy. We call it a cataract. That's me operating. When the cataract gets dense enough, we take out the cloudy lens and replace it with a clear lens. The first day after surgery, patients often comment how the color of their kitchen walls have magically changed from yellow to white. <laughs> because they have more light coming into their eye, they can see the true colors of everything around them. As believers, we are people of light, and that light reveals the truth. Ephesians 5, 8-9 says, For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord, so live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. In the same way, Christian fellowship should be a community marked by truth. Throughout the New Testament, we see the early church living out a dynamic faith which involved the open confession of sins. In Acts 19, 18-20, it says, Many who became believers 
confessed their sinful practices. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was several million dollars. So the message about the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. We mentioned the term revival, and I've seen this in small and large settings, but one key aspect has always been the confession of sin. Sometimes it's sin that's been festering for decades, a struggle we can't imagine sharing with anyone. But I've seen the change. I've seen the freedom that happens when hearts open fully to God and to each other. Confession has been an integral part of movements that transform not only individuals, but entire communities and whole countries. The Jesus movement in the 60s sparked a new generation of believers, which led to the formation of 1,800 new churches around the world, and that's portrayed in the movie, Jesus Revolution. After World War II, people started using a pesticide named DDT to control mosquitoes and other insects. Unfortunately, the chemical washed into the waterways across the US and Canada where aquatic plants and fish absorbed it. Bald eagles, in turn, were poisoned when they ate the contaminated fish. DDT caused the eagles to produce eggs with extremely thin shells, so they'd break when a mother eagle sat on them. Countless numbers of eagles never hatched. By 1963, only 417 nesting pairs of bald eagles were known to exist, becoming an endangered species by 1967. In 1972, DDT was banned, and the, early, and the eagle population slowly rebounded. In 2007, the bald eagle was taken off the threatened species list. Sin works like DDT. It's a hidden poison weakening us, even threatening our young ones. How do we deal with sin? We expose its presence in our lives. We get it out of our system. We fight against it as a unified body of Christ. And one may ask, can we do this alone? Hasn't Christ given us the power to individually overcome sin? When we read the Gospels, how much of the disciples' experience was conducted as individuals? Jesus gathered the twelve to share life with him and with each other. When Jesus sent them out to heal the sick and cast out demons, he sent them in pairs. Even alone in Gethsemane, Jesus had the fellowship of the Father and the Holy Spirit. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, says, Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more attractive will be the power of sin over him, and the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. So how does this work? What I'm talking about is often called accountability. And we see instructions for this throughout the New Testament. It's a relationship encouraging spiritual growth, often addressing a particular facet of life, sometimes a particular sin. This can be done in a mentoring-style relationship with a more mature believer, encouraging a younger believer. Sometimes it's done among peers. It's often conducted in small groups, sometimes one-on-one. What does this involve? First, it takes a humble heart. I have an accountability group. We talk about real life. We talk about where we've failed and messed up, and it's humbling. Who admits they're wrong these days? But as we confess our sins, 
We take off the, the facade of being good people and grab hold of our identity in Christ because that's our true righteousness. That's our true identity. Second, accountability loves truth. In Matthew 10, 26, Jesus says, there's nothing covered that won't be uncovered and nothing hidden that won't be made known. How much better if we address our sin and correct it before that day of judgment? The truth hurts sometimes, but we know that wounds from a friend can be trusted, Proverbs 27. It's important we speak the truth with kindness so our words encourage rather than condemn, Romans 14. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Um, find someone that knows the truth and points you to God's word. Third, an accountability partner should be someone we can trust. Don't rush into this. Accountability groups deal with discreet, confidential information, and it takes time to develop these relationships. If we're struggling with something, pray for a believer to come alongside and be an accountability partner. If we're mature believers, be available if someone presents that need. Let's have ears to hear and eyes to see, like a good lifeguard. A drowning person often doesn't make a sound. They just slip quietly under the waves. Do we have the courage to blow the whistle and go after someone if they're heading into dangerous waters? Accountability relationships save lives. Verse 20 says, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. Let's go back to Taylor the eagle. We bring her back to the same open meadow every week. She wanders in the grass, flutters around a bit, but another bald eagle shows up in the area, a male. We can tell he's at least five years old because he has a full white head. And maybe he's being territorial, maybe he likes her. In any case, he shows up whenever Taylor's around, so we start calling him Joel. <laughs> One day, Joel lands a few yards away from Taylor and they stare at each other. Then Joel chases Taylor along the ground and she flaps her wings and makes it to the lowest branch of a nearby tree. She comes back down when Joel leaves. The same thing happens the next week, except Taylor flies to a higher branch. And this goes on and on until one windy day when Joel's chasing her, Taylor spreads her wings and is taken by the wind and it speeds her just above the tall grass. And then with a, a flap or two, she's coursing through the air, high above the meadow, side by side with Joel. They circle the meadow once as if in farewell and then they're gone to wherever they're supposed to go. Where are we today? Is there sin weighing us down? Are we stretching our wings in faith? For, the, for others, the question may be, how can we help others fly? Do we see the people around us? Who needs encouragement? Who needs healing? When we pray, let it be in the strength and power of Christ, whose grace is sufficient for today and every season of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are calling us. You're calling us to, to lead repentant lives. Father, forgive us for the sin in our lives, Lord. Help us to continue to, to grow, Lord. You are our righteousness. You're the one who forgives us, Lord. You're the one who um, will heal our bodies. Lord, you're the one who will give us a, a new redeemed body someday. And Lord, we 
we are waiting, Lord, in this lifetime, Father, there's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of heartache. But Father, you give us strength to continue on, even in the trial. And Lord, we ask for your blessing and your strength even this day, in your name, amen. Now, keeping with the theme of prayer, we're gonna have a couple minutes of meditation and prayer. We have a prompt on the screen. If you'd like to pray with someone, feel free to do so. We also have a prayer team in the back who'd be happy to pray with you.